All right, so we are in Genesis chapter 14, and in that same spirit of prayer, let us just ask God one last time for his blessing on our Bible study now. So Father, we uh, thank you that you're here, and we thank you that you bid us to pray. We thank you, Lord, that your word speaks, that it's eternal. And we ask that you take the things off the page tonight, that you'd make them real and relevant, and that you'd apply them to our hearts in very personal, practical, lasting ways. We pray, Lord, above all, that we'd see Jesus in it, that we'd see you, that we'd recognize your heart and your will, your desire for our lives, and most of all, your love for each one of us. So, Lord, bless this time. Let your spirit rest upon this sanctuary. Anoint these words, O Lord, and anoint our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 14, in verse 1, it says that it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elassar, Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shabimer, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And all these joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. In twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Chedorlaomer with the kings that were with him. And they smote the Rephaims in Ashtoreth Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shea Kiriathim. And the Horites in Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to En-Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hezazan Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim, with Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, and Amrapel, the king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, or tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their victuals, their food, their supplies, and they went their way, and they took Lot. Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and then they departed. And thus, the last verse of the section uh, gives sense to why all of this detail and why this battle is highlighted for us as we're there. As we come to this passage of Scripture, following, again, the life of Abraham, and uh, secondarily, the life of Lot, the picture of two believers that are uh, very relevant and real in, in today's kingdom of God as we look at our lives through the lens of, uh, of these men and the testimony of Scripture. We come to a passage where there are two first mentions right off the bat. I've uh, been pointing out to you as we've been going through Genesis that um, the first time something is mentioned in the Bible, it really sets the stage for that theme from Genesis all the way through until Revelation. And there's two first mentions here, right in the first verse, and it's the first mention of kings, and it's the first mention of war. And usually, the two things go together. When there are kings, plural, uh, there is probably going to be war somewhere also involved in that. When there's one king, uh, there's no war, because there's nothing to fight over, and there's no power struggle. But when there are kings, there is usually war. There's some kind of a struggle, something to control and, uh, and then control over that something. And so a struggle for power and then some spoil, something to be obtained. Although it's the first mention of war, ever since the Garden of Eden, this planet has been a war-torn place. The very onset, we learn that Satan, who was one of God's created angels, launched a rebellion and started a war in heaven between a third of the angels and God and his hosts, those that were faithful to him. We saw that after Satan was cast into the earth, Satan instigated a war between man and the God who created him. And thus a war began at the fall between a humanity who thought it would be better with its own independence 
fighting against God for sovereignty over himself. Again, a war, a struggle, and something to control. We've also learned that in that fallen state, man who is at war with God is also often at war with himself. We saw that Cain and Abel had a conflict and there was a war between them seeking the favor of God and the upper hand in spiritual things. We read all the way from Genesis to Revelation and in the history books of the history of the world that there has always been a struggle between fallen men for power and uh, territory and authority and resources and ideology, religion or political or otherwise that we live in a very conflicted planet that is filled with battles and wars. We know that biblically speaking, there is a spiritual war, an invisible war that's taking place all around us all the time in a realm that we can't see. A battle between God and Satan, between good and evil, between light and darkness, between the kingdom of God and between the kingdom of men and the kingdom of, of, of Satan. And so we understand it, we feel it, we live in this world that's conflicted. We ourselves are involved in war in many different ways, on many different levels, and oftentimes throughout our life. And the hard cry of humanity is for peace. We look for the day and long for the day when the war will be over, when there will be no more. And thank God that day will come. There will be a day when there are no more wars, no more conflicts. We love the words of the prophet Isaiah who speaks of the day in which Christ will return and he says that he will judge among the nations and he shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah expands further upon the conditions of that time when there will be peace and no longer war. He says in chapter 11, verse 4, he says that with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, that is the poisonous snake, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we wait for the day when there will be war no more. But the reality is that we live in a world today that's fallen, conflicted, and war is very much an ingredient, an aspect, a characteristic of the times in which we live. And thus the chapter that's before us, Genesis chapter 14, speaks to us concerning the reality of war in a fallen world and where it fits into God's plan and purpose for this world and for the lives of God's people. And thus in the chapter, in its totality, though we only read the first 12 verses to begin, there are three wars that take place in this chapter. First of all, the war around Abraham in verses 1 through 12. Secondarily, the war that involves Abraham in verses 13 through 16. And then finally, the war for Abraham in verses 17 through 24, the end of the chapter. And all three of those wars very much speak to the condition of our time and our experience and our relationship with the Lord. The wars around us, the wars that involve us, and the war for us or the battle over us. And so we see these three wars beginning in these first 12 verses with the war around Abram, the main character of our study. And what we see is that at the onset of this, that there was an alliance of nine kings that were a part of 
a very powerful and expanding empire that had its roots near and around the area of Babylon. And as the kingdom there was expanding, they moved into the territory wherein Lot has become a citizen, the area on the south side of the Dead Sea, the five cities of the plain that included the two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, the place where Lot himself is dwelling. What we learn concerning this alliance of nine kings is that the head of these nine was this one king named Chedorlaomer. And as he expanded into the region of the five cities of the plain, he became a draw upon their resources, and the five kings of the plain became discontent with what they were getting out of the deal. And so it tells us that for 12 years they served Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled against him. They said, we no longer want to pay taxes and be subjects and servants to the levy that you're putting over us. We're not going to do it anymore. And so they rebelled in the 13th year, and in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer, unwilling to lose his subjects and his control over the resource-rich region of the Siddim Valley or the Salt Sea, he launches an offensive, very strategic, in order to recapture these kings and their territories and take and possess control over the resources yet again. And so he begins by attacking piece by piece all of the regions surrounding the cities of the plain. He comes into the area of Bashan in the north and he takes out that king. He comes into the area of Ham in the south and he takes out those kings. He comes into the east, in the north, or the, the, you know, kind of the west, and, or it would be the east and the southeast, and he takes out those kings. And what he's doing, he's surrounding that area and cutting off their supplies. He's giving them the, no place to surrender. And as the cities of the plain finally become surrounded, the five kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and Adma and Zeboim, all of these kings now find themselves in a place where they have to fight in order to defend themselves. And so the battle begins, and it's fought in a place called the Siddim Valley, where we're told there are slime pits or tar pits. And the tricky part about that territory is that the tar pits would blend in with the rest of the terrain, because in the sand-blown areas, the sandstorms would blow over and cover the tar pits with sand, and you would get stuck. It would be like walking into a pit of quicksand and there would be nothing you could do. And in the midst of this battle between the four kings of Persia and the five kings of the cities of the plains, we're told that two kings get scared and they abandon their place. The kings of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. It says that they fled. It was the turning point in the battle. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled the battle, it overpowered the other three kings so that they had to flee to the mountains. And thus the four kings of Persia were victorious in this battle. And of course we know that to the victor goes the spoils. And thus the four kings of Persia capture all of the goods and riches, all of the food and the provisions, and also the citizens of the five cities of the plain, among them Lot, and probably also Lot's family. So Lot is taken. His goods, his possessions are carried away up now into the north. Now we became acquainted with this character Lot in our study last time. He initially left Babylon with Abram and traveled with him. And he was his compadre, his companion, all the way up until there was conflict between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham in a resource-lean region. And thus Abram came to Lot and he said, Lot, lift up now and choose where you want to go. And you go the direction you want to go, and I'll go in the opposite direction, but there must not be strife between us. And we learned of Lot, as we looked at him last time, that he was a man who was very much driven by his senses. He looked and he saw to the south in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah that The land was very fertile there, and it was a great place to expand his territory and to increase his portfolio and his wealth. Yeah, there's wickedness down there. The reputation of what comes out of those cities and what it does to the people that live there isn't so good, but Lot thought, this is going to be a good move for my family. 
And so he moved into that region, thinking that he would be unaffected by the culture. And in his poor decision-making, he first set his eyes toward Sodom. Then he pitched his tent continually closer and closer to Sodom. And what we read in verse 12 of our text tonight is that now Lot dwelled in Sodom. And that's an amazing thing to consider concerning this man. Because in order for Lot to be dwelling in the city of Sodom, it means that he has made an amazing transformation of his life. See, these are cities. We're going to learn in chapter 19 that Lot has a house there. He has a residence there. Which means somewhere along the line, he's traded in his occupation as a herdsman and as a farmer. And he's sold off his farm and probably also his servants. And he's traded all of that in for what we now learn that he has, goods. No longer is it livestock, but he's changed his whole identity. And he's lost himself into the slime of the city of Sodom. And it's a sad thing that happens to Lot now as he's in this place and he now loses everything that he had gained, everything that he has, including his family, his money, and even his freedom. All of it now gone because of the poor decisions that he made being led with his eyes and not by the Holy Spirit of God who was living in his heart, as we learned last time. I see a lot of Christians and have seen a lot of Christians over the years that suffer a very common and similar fate to what we see in this man, Lot. They come to a place in their life where they have come to what we would call a train wreck, a massive storm that has just taken their life by surprise. And they come in and and they get right and they come back and they say, I don't know what happened. And as you talk to them and you say, well, tell me about the last 10 years, the last 15 years, sometimes the last five years or two years. You talk to me, what happened? You find that what happened in their life is very similar to what happened to Lot. Well, I got my eyes off the Lord and I got my eyes onto something that this world was promising to give me. And the direction of my life stopped going heavenward and somehow it veered by degrees earthward. And I found myself pitching closer and closer, being consumed more and more by earthly pursuits than heavenly pursuits. And even though I told myself I'll never become this way, I'll get this close and go no further. I'll go this far, but I won't cross that line. I found myself continually crossing those lines again and again until I found myself enslaved, ensnared by the very lifestyle I hated, chasing after a pursuit that I thought that I wanted. And now I find myself in a place where I'm completely lost. And unfortunately, it's the sad story of many believers who are led by their eyes rather than by their faith, led by the counsels of the world rather than the counsel of the Lord and of His Word. And it's a sad thing to see, and we see it now happening to this man, Lot. Now, you say, well, what does all of this have to do with the war that's so carefully detailed for us in the first 11 verses of this passage? Why is it here in this way? Here's why. Because God loves His own. And we know that Lot belongs to God because we're told in the New Testament that Lot was a righteous man, meaning that he was saved. He had a relationship with God. And God loves his own so much that he will not allow his own to live continually in a backslidden state without God at least reaching recklessly, attempting to grab a hold of their hearts and their attention and, again, their affections and to draw them back to himself. And so what do we see in this war as it got closer and closer to Sodom? We see that God was continually drawing his bow and throwing arrows across the bow of Lot's stern, giving him warning that, hey, you're going to run out of time and run out of room. No doubt Lot in Sodom would hear the reports that the opposing invading army is getting closer and closer. And they're taking out some pretty impressive opponents along the way. I mean, Bashan, where Og was the king, those were no small people. We saw back up in verse 2 that the Zumims and the Emims were there. Those were the giants, and they were also taken out by Chedorlaomer and his invading armies. And for sure, Lot, having the Spirit of God, is feeling the squeeze, 
that he's not living where he should be and he's going to run out of time. Soon judgment is going to fall on these cities. And if he's living in that state, then he also will be a victim of that chastisement, that judgment of God that's coming. God is faithful in the life of his own to give warning after warning when you or I or one of his is out of the way that we should be. And you know it in your life just like I know it in my life. When we've moved away by degrees and we begin to see things happen just on the outside of the reach of evil touching us. And something inside goes, we wake up and we see it and we realize, we say, oh, is this God? Am I going to be found out? Is my sin going to be judged? What's going to happen? And then we kind of get away with it or the storm passes over or we don't lose our job in that particular layoff or something we avoid it and we say, oh, okay, I've got time. And we can make the mistake of thinking that God's patience is actually God's acceptance. And it's not. But God is faithful. He doesn't drop the hammer on us. He's not looking to destroy us. He wants to see us turn back to him and do what's right. And so he closes things in slowly. So what is God doing by progressing this enemy force the way that he is? He's giving Lot time, but the margins are getting smaller and smaller, and Lot is not heeding the warning. Neither is the city of Sodom. They're not paying attention to what's going on all around them all the time. It's interesting the way God does this in our lives. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 4, it says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he lists. That is, wherever he wants to. In other words, what we're learning in the Bible from that verse is that God is the one that ordains and controls what happens in the kingdoms of men. When King Nebuchadnezzar was over the kingdom of Babylon, it was the largest, most powerful empire in the world in its day. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was in control of world affairs because he was the king of the world. But God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and for seven years he lost his mind, and God said, the reason why this is happening to you is so that you will know, Nebuchadnezzar, that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, and he sets over it, or them, whomsoever he pleases, even the basest of men. God is the one that controls kings and governments and politics, and he can use it in whatever way he wants to. David found himself in a particular instance and situation in his reign and in his kingdom. We found himself surrounded by enemies. We don't know whether they were enemies from other territories or enemies from within his own administration. He doesn't say. But in Psalm 17, he's praying for deliverance. He's saying, God, I haven't done anything wrong. I've checked my heart and I haven't sinned against you. But there's an opposing force. There's something seeking to take over my territory and my kingdom. And then he said, God, deliver me. Listen, he said, God, deliver me from, the hand, or from men which are thy hand. In other words, David recognized that God controls the conflicts that go on in the world and he uses them for his own purposes. The prophet Habakkuk, living in Jerusalem in the days when the Babylonian Empire was surrounding them and about to overtake them. And Habakkuk, a prophet and a righteous man, prays to the Lord and he says, God, what's going to happen? You're God. We're your people. They've surrounded us. They're threatening to overtake us. Please, God, show yourself to be strong and frustrate them and drive them away. And God looked back at Habakkuk and he said, Habakkuk, you're out of time. The people have rebelled to the point where now they will be overtaken and invaded and they will be carried away as slaves. And Habakkuk said, but God, this is the Assyrians. They're cruel. Haven't you seen what they do? They take no prisoners. They kill everyone. They put hooks in jaws. They're, they're like a hammer, Lord. What are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? And God said, because this is going to be my instrument of chastisement on a nation that has ignored me over and over and over and over again. I'm going to use an evil empire to judge a rebellious Israel. The point of all of it is that God's the one that controls the conflicts 
and he uses them to his own ends. And so it becomes, for you and I, an insight, a clue. As we monitor and watch the conflicts that go on around us, much like the conflict that's going on around Lot and around Abraham in this passage. We think about the conflicts that happen in our jobs with the people we work with or work for or who work for us. The conflicts that go on in our homes amongst people. The conflicts that happen amongst friends or in churches. Conflicts. We understand them. And what we recognize from the Bible is that God says that he is over the conflicts and that they serve his purposes in order to speak to us, in order to lead us, sometimes to correct us or set us free from something. The conflicts, the wars that are going on around us are the very hand of God in order to get our attention or to speak to us in some way. Now, it's not always discipline like it is here in the text with Lot. Sometimes God has other reasons for causing conflict in our lives that he wants to use in certain ways. I think of the conflict that came up between Jacob and Laban. We'll read about it later on in the further chapters of Genesis. There was conflict between them, and it wasn't discipline for Jacob, but rather it was God's leading. God was using the conflict between Jacob and Laban to get Jacob into the next chapter of his life. But conflict was the hand of God in order to bring him to that place. I think in the New Testament of Paul and Barnabas, the greatest missionary team that ever was in the New Testament. Complementary personalities. And yet they came into a conflict over whether or not John Mark would come with them on their second missionary journey. And the Bible tells us that the conflict, the contention was so sharp, they almost came to blows. Paul and Barnabas, these two Christian people. And the result of it is that two missionary teams went to two different areas instead of one missionary team. God used that conflict in order to further his kingdom and to lead his servants. There was God moving behind the scenes to accomplish his will. I think of Rebecca. She had a war going on inside of her. She was pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau, and there was a war going on in the womb inside of her as these two nations were struggling inside of her. And she prayed to the Lord and she said, God, if this is your blessing, then why this pain? If I'm in your blessing, then why is there this conflict, this problem that's going on inside of me? And God gave an answer. He said, the reason you're wrestling is because there's two nations inside your womb that are going to be separated from it. And then he gave her insight concerning the generations of her sons. You say, well, what was the purpose of that war? It was to reveal to Rebecca the things that would happen concerning her sons. And also to give her insight about the two natures that were existing within her. So what's the point of all this? The point is, listen, every one of us in this conflicted world has conflicts going on around us all the time. And if we would begin to see those things as the hand of a providential God who says he owns all of it and controls all of it, and if we would bring it to him and say, God, why this conflict with a Laban? or with a Barnabas, or with myself, then he will no doubt give the answer and help us to understand and know what it is. Sometimes the conflicts are for our own discipline because we need to get right with God. But not always. But sometimes they are. And they are, of course, with Lot. And so the war that's going on around Abraham and Lot, bringing, hopefully, an outcome that will be good, the same way we do. The second war that we see in the passage, not the war that's going on around Abram, but the war that directly involved Abram. Notice in verse 13, Genesis 14, verse 13. It says that there came one that had escaped. And he told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram, and when Abram heard that his brother, Lot, was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and he pursued them unto Dan, way up in the north, about 120 miles. 
And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and he smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left side of Damascus, up in modern-day Syria. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother, his nephew, Lot, and his goods and the women and the people also. This is an absolutely amazing short passage and testimony of an incredible victory that took place in the life of Abram. We're told that as he's dwelling in the plains of Mamre in the region of Hebron where he would make his home, we're told that a messenger escaped from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and came and told him, Abraham, you know, sorry, I couldn't resist, you know, <laughs> out of Sodom and Gomorrah, get it? So, come on, guys, are you sleeping, you know? <laughs> Your nephew, your nephew, you know. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't resist. We're told that he came to Abraham, who here is called Abram the Hebrew. First time that we see this word used, Abram the Hebrew, it means, or it's translated, or, or other places it's called Haburai. It means nomadic shepherd. It speaks to the fact that he was a stranger, a, a, a foreigner living in the land of promise, something that we're all called to be. And the messenger tells him that Sodom and Gomorrah have been overthrown and that in the mix-up, Lot has also been taken captive and he is now a prisoner of war, taken up by these kings up into the north. And when Abram hears this word, the very first thing that he does is he counts off and he says, how many men in the militia? How many can fight and how many can we arm? And it's numbered back to him that there's 318 that are trained that are able to fight. And he says, prepare yourselves for war. We're going in after Lot. Now this is amazing. Jesus said, didn't he, that if any king is going to go to war with another king, does he not first count the cost and see if he that only has 10,000 can go against him that has 20,000 successfully. And if not, then he doesn't go into battle so that he doesn't suffer shame. And what we see here is that Abraham hears that Lot has been taken captive, and he has a meager 318 men that can be armed and go fight, and he's going to go and challenge the superpower of his day that has not been stopped by even the most powerful armies that existed around him. I mean, the Emims and the Zumims, they were the giants that Israel was afraid of in their future. These kings are unstoppable. This is a force that we don't even know the number of. They're battled ready, they're primed, they're violent men. But Abram says, I don't really care what the odds are. He said, I don't even really care if I die. My brother my nephew, my son, the one that I've raised from the time that he was young, the one that I feel responsible for, he's been taken captive, and thus this war has now become my war because of the way that it affects this young man Lot, and I will do what I can even if the odds are greatly stacked against me. Now, I would think if I was Abraham in this situation, I would think, well, you know what? Lot is finally getting what he deserves. You made your bed, now sleep in it. You reap what you sow. God is not mocked. And Lot, you should have known when you got yourself into Sodom, you had the warnings, God told you, I told you, and now you're just going to have to live with the consequences of your decisions. That's probably what I would have done. Not the man Abraham, not the man of faith. He sees that his brother, his son, his nephew, a righteous man is taken captive, and he's going to do what he can, no matter the cost, in order to try to deliver his brother. This is the way that we're to be towards one another, isn't it? Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have one towards another. We're to fight for one another. We're to do what we can when we see someone overtaken in a fall. Galatians 6.1, if a man is overtaken in a fall, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We're to do what we can. Now, I think that in this segment, this portion of Abram's uh, life, or when this news comes, I think Abram gets a little bit excited. Not because he wanted to fight, or because he was a man of violence or a man of war. But I think in Abram, he's thinking that this is exactly what I've been praying for. 
This is what I've been hoping for. This is exactly what Lot needed in his life at this time. He's been walking so contrary for so long, and finally, he's seeing the outcome. He's seeing the fruit of that lifestyle and of that way. And this is going to be the thing that's going to finally wake him up. This is the thing that's going to get his attention, and we're going to have Lot back again. He's going to be back in the ministry, back with the sheep, the way he's supposed to be. He's not going to be out there in Sodom, living the Sodomite lifestyle, vexed and tormented by the conversation of things. We're finally going to have Lot home, and I think that Abraham is saying to Sarah excitedly, this is good, this is a good thing that's happening to Lot now. And so Abraham takes his men, and he travels the hundred plus miles north, and we're told that he attacks by night. He divides his company, he attacks in the dark in a way wherein the enemy wouldn't know how large or small the contingents or the battalions were. It's much like Gideon's 300, isn't it? That went up against the 110,000 Midianites in the book of Judges. And God gives Abraham the victory. We're told in the New Testament that these kings were slaughtered. Abraham's men kill these five kings. And in the process of winning the battle, they recover not just the people, but they recover all of the spoils and the provisions. Everything is recovered by Abraham and his men. And they go back home. And I wonder what it was like for Lot and Abraham as they walked the long trek home. The things that they talked about. I mean, just think about what Lot just escaped from. Can you imagine someone that had like a gambling addiction? And they go on a binge and they go to Las Vegas... And they spend every last dollar that they have trying to recover and trying to get ahead. And knowing the shame and the embarrassment of what's about to befall them if they go home, they make one last bet. And in that one last bet, they bet the deed to their house, the titles to their vehicles, and even their marriage license. They say, I'll give you my wife and even my children to be slaves if I lose on this last roll. But if I win, then I recover all. And that gambling addict spins the wheel or rolls the dice, and he loses. And he watches the casino worker or the bookie take his deed, his wedding ring, his children, and the clothes off of his back. And as he finds himself going out into the street, being completely wasted, having lost everything because of his sin, a message comes. That there's a rich uncle, a believer, who has unlimited resources, a very wealthy man, and having compassion on this man who's a gambler, he's bailed him out. He's paid off his debt, he's redeemed his house, his marriage, his children. Not only that, but he's given back to this man everything that he recklessly and foolishly gambled away. What an amazing grace that's given to Lot here. It's even bigger what's happened to Lot than it would be for that man to be set free in that way. Because Abram didn't just spend money in order to deliver Lot. He risked his life and the life of his men. And he did it. And Lot has recovered all. He lost it all, tasted what that slavery was, and now all of it is given back to him, and it's an amazing thing that's happened. You say, well, what's the battle at the core of it that involved Abraham here? It wasn't the battle of the kings. It wasn't the 318 and the faith that it took for him to go up and fight those men. The battle that involved Abraham here was the battle for a lost son. It was the battle for a backslidden brother. That's the battle that involves Abraham here in this experience. I think that to be a parent is probably one of the hardest things that a person could ever do in their lifetime on this planet. To have to go through the ups and downs of watching our kids grow up and make choices and make mistakes and come into train wrecks and, you know, to experience the emotional roller coaster of seeing their ups and downs is just one of the most difficult things that we ever have to go through. But I think the three most difficult things about being a parent are, first of all, when we see our kids on a path that we know is going to lead to a train wreck. That's number one. Number two is watching that train wreck happen if it does. That's difficult. 
But the third, and by far the most difficult thing any parent will ever have to go through, is seeing after that train wreck comes, and it's cleaned up and they survive, that child going right back into the same pattern and manner of life that led them to the train wreck to begin with. And it happens all too frequently. And unfortunately, it happens to Lot. It happens to Abram. Abram knew, and I'm sure had a heart for Lot as he saw him there in Sodom. He knew what was coming. He saw the train wreck, felt the turmoil of knowing Lot was a captive. And then he bailed Lot out. He did what he could and what he had to in order to see Lot set free, hoping that finally Lot's eyes are going to be opened. He's going to see it now. He's going to get right. And they walk a hundred miles back. There's an amazing restoration. But Lot is going to go right back into the same lifestyle that led him to the tragedy that he experienced in the first place. And the outcome the second time is going to be even worse than it was the first time. You say, well, this is filled with great hope. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> Three times in the Bible, Abraham is called the friend of God. Other than when Jesus said that we're his friends, there's no one else in the Bible that holds that title. Abraham has it exclusively. He's called the friend of God. What is a friend? A friend is someone that relates to a person on an intimate level. They share something in common. There's a relationship deeper than just a mere acquaintance. And I believe part of the reason why Abram was called the friend of God was because of the experience that Abram is experiencing right here. God is letting Abram in on something that he feels all the time. Watching his prodigals, the kids that he loves, us, you and me, on a path that he knows is going to end in a train wreck. And then seeing that train wreck come and God coming into the circumstance and delivering us from us and restoring us and bringing us back to the place of exaltation and then watching us go right back into the very thing that led to the train wreck in the beginning. God is letting Abram feel what he himself feels as our Heavenly Father on a constant moment-by-moment -moment basis. It's what the Bible calls the fellowship of suffering. And Abraham is becoming acquainted with the grief of God, the pain of God, the heartbreak of God, on a very personal and very real level in this. The amazing thing is that's the privilege that you and I have as we go to war, whether it be for the kids that we see going up and down and we're constantly praying for them, battling for them, crying for them, or whether it be our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that are struggling, that we see again and again falling, and yet we hope for them, we plead for them, we pray for them, and it hurts us to watch the pain that's going on in their lives. It's the fellowship of suffering. It's seeing what he sees. And so the war that involved Abram as he rescues Lot from this situation, only again to see him go right back into it again, the third war that we see in the passage, verses 17 through 24, is the war for Abraham. Notice in verse 17. It says that the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the Kingsdale or the King's Valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him, that is Melchizedek, tithes, or a tenth, of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons or the souls and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoelace and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. 
save except only that which the young men have eaten. They don't have to pay for the food that they ate along the way. And the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. We're told that as Abram is now returning from this great victory back into his homeland with Lot and with the citizens and the spoils of Sodom and the five cities of the plain, we're told that he's met by two kings. First of all, the king of Sodom. This man who's a man of filth, a man of slime, a man of the flesh. A man who's a coward, who abandoned his own people and his own alliance, his own citizens, because he was afraid in the battle. He left them all to die, him and the king of Gomorrah. This man who could care less for anyone but himself, the lowest of the low, he comes out to meet Abram. The second king that comes out to meet Abram is this man, the king of Salem, this man by the name of Melchizedek. You say, well, where did he come from? Isn't he kind of a late entrance onto the stage of things here in the chapter? We've never heard of this guy, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He came out to meet Abram. Who is he? Well, we're told that he's a priest and that he's a king. Salem is short for Jerusalem in that day. We're told that he blessed Abram as he returned. And he said to him that you are blessed of the Most High God and that you're the possessor of the heavens and the earth and that God has delivered your enemies into your hand. We're told that Abram then gave him tithes, a tenth of all the victor spoils. And then this Melchizedek just goes away and disappears. And that's it. It's over. We don't hear about him again in the book of Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He doesn't come up in the conquest of Canaan and the division of the promised land. He's gone. He appears here for a few verses, and then he disappears. Until Psalm 110, verse 4, where his name comes up again. Where David declares by the Spirit of God, speaking of Messiah, Jesus, prophetically, that he, Jesus, would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then again, his name disappears. No elaboration, no expansion, no explanation. The name's there, and then he's gone. And he doesn't come up again throughout all the rest of Old Testament history. Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, never mentioned once by Jesus, the book of Acts, the epistles, not again until the New Testament book of Hebrews. Where in chapter 7, the author of Hebrews seeking to describe and explain Jesus Christ to us, he takes this passage in Genesis and he explains it. And he says in chapter 7, these things about Melchizedek, he says that he united the office of priest and king, something that had never been done in all of Old Testament history. You could be a priest or a king, not both. But Melchizedek united both offices. He tells us also that he is without genealogy which for a priest would be extremely unique. And the point of that was that he's eternal in nature. He has no beginning and no ending. It's an eternal priesthood. That's the second thing he says. Not only a king and a priest, he's also eternally a priest. And then third of all, he tells us, Hebrews chapter 7, that Abram paid tithes and was blessed by Melchizedek. And the Hebrew writer says that both of those things are an indication that Melchizedek was greater than Abram. Because you are blessed by him who is greater than you, and you pay tithes to him who is greater than you. Thus Melchizedek is exalted over Abram, which makes him also over Abram's descendants, the priests of the Old Testament. You say, okay, well what does that have to do with all of this, and why is all of that relevant and important? Because what we learn of this man Melchizedek is that he is none other than an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ himself. The Hebrew writer explains it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, as he concludes. He says, but this man, Melchizedek, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us 
who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who's made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for their own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law makes the Son, Jesus Christ, who is consecrated forevermore. In summation, what's he saying? Is that Jesus Christ went out and met with Abraham when he was returning from the slaughter of the kings. He brought forth bread and wine, the emblems of communion, of his own body and blood, and the sacrifice that would be made on behalf of Abram and for Abram. He was blessed, Abram was, by the presence of Jesus in this moment, as Jesus, the eternal priest, comes out to meet Abram in his return from the slaughter of the kings. Then the king of Sodom comes. And he makes a proposition also to Abram. And he says to Abram, he says, Look, to the victor go the spoils. You won the battle. These servants are rightfully yours now. The riches and wealth that was recovered is rightfully yours. You're the victor of the battle. But I'll tell you what. If I'm going to continue to have a kingdom, I'm going to need people, citizens. You keep all of the spoils. You can have the riches from the battle. But give me back the citizens. I want the souls. This filthy, satanic, Satan-like slime ball of a king. The king of Sodom says, give me the souls, you keep the stuff. Can you hear the slithering voice of Satan? That's been his mantra since the beginning. I want the souls, and I'm willing to give the stuff, the goods, the substance, in order to ensnare the souls. Now the amazing thing about Abram in this, is that Abram didn't go into this battle to get rich or to enlarge his household. Abram dismisses both the servants and the stuff. He doesn't take either of them. When Jesus sets a person free, when he delivers them from their slavery and their captivity, he doesn't set them free so that they can become slaves for him. He sets them free and gives them freedom to choose what they want. It's exactly what Abram does here. He doesn't keep the souls or the stuff. He says, no, I delivered these. They're free. They can do what they want. He doesn't say, I'm keeping it all. He gives it all away. But Satan wants the souls and he'll give the stuff. This is what Satan does. Do you realize it? He will give you, he will offer you earthly, temporary, material things in order to blind and, and distract and ensnare and enslave your soul for the service of his kingdom and his kingship. This is the very heart of Satan. And the battle for Abraham is ensuing right now. Who will possess Abram's soul? And I want you to listen as we close. One of these two kings says, I don't care about you. I don't care for you. I want your soul to serve myself, and I'll give you what I have to in order to get it. Riches, wealth, position, possession, I'll give it to you. But give me the soul. The king of Salem, Jesus Christ, he comes with the bread of his broken body. He comes with the wine of his shed blood. He says, take and eat. For this is my body which has been broken for you. Take this, my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom from the bondage of the flesh, deliverance and redemption from the ensnarements of this world, eternal life in heaven. It's in my blood that was shed for you upon a cross. And I don't want your stuff. And I don't want your service to expand my influence or my fame or my popularity. I'm giving myself for you. I care about you. 
And my offering is not in this world. And I'm a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I ever live to make intercession for you. And what I offer you is not the temporary trinkets of this broken, fallen world that cannot last and cannot satisfy. But what I offer to you is myself. And should you take what I give, you become the possessor of heaven and earth. And you get me. And Abram looks at the king of Sodom and he says, hang it on your horn. For I've lifted up my hand unto the most high God who is ultimately the possessor of heaven and earth. And I will not take a shoelace from you lest at any time you should say, I made Abram rich. Listen, church. When we see Jesus for who he is, when we recognize the broken body and the shed blood and the cross, and we understand what it means that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. And when we understand what it means that God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we understand what it means when it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He armed his 318 in heaven. He came into this world clothed in human flesh. He single-handedly defeated death and the devil and sin and temptation. And he carried our sins to the cross, not so that we could do something for him, but so that he could have us and we could have him. And when we understand that and our perspective is set right, then there is nothing that this world can ever offer us that would take us away from Him and our affections towards Him. There are battles that go on around us. God uses those things to direct, sometimes to chastise, to lead, to speak and reveal. There are battles that concern us, those around us, our kids, our brothers and sisters, our parents. And there is a battle, no doubt, for us. This world wants a hold on your soul. And I wonder tonight where you're at in the context of that. Have you, by degrees, found yourself pitching your tent closer and closer to Sodom, seeking and loving, caring for the things of this world, eyes off heaven? The worship team can come as we close. Jesus was walking through a particular village and there was a man who was blind. And as he heard Jesus coming, he cried out and he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus came to him and he said, What would you that I should do for you? And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And the Bible tells us that Jesus spit on the ground and he made clay with the mixture in his hands and he rubbed it on the man's eyes. Just imagine what that was like, right? First, you can't see, but you hear, you know, and then you feel wet, you know. And it says that he touched him, and he, he asked him the question, he says, tell me, can you see anything? And the man said, I see men as trees walking. Cloudy, it's fuzzy. I, I can kind of see, but I can't make things out specifically. There's, it's an improvement, but, but I can't make it out. It's not clear. I, it's obscure. There's a fog. I, I'm bumping into things. And so it tells us there in Mark's gospel that Jesus touched his eyes the second time, and it says that he caused him to look up. That's what it says. And then he said, now see ye anything. And the man said, now I see all things clearly. What's the point? See, when earth is in our lens, we can't see clearly. We can see. We've been touched by Jesus. There's life. There's a relationship. There's an interaction. There's been a healing, but I can't see where I'm going. I, I can't make out the path. It's not clear. I'm bumping into things. I, I don't see people clearly. I don't, I, I, earth is my lens. But when Jesus causes us to look up, 
when our eyes are fixed firmly on Him and on the Father, on His Word, on His Spirit, on His will for our lives, on the truth of what's going on in this planet, when we look up, the Bible says that then we see all things clearly. I have lifted up my hand to the Lord of hosts. I will not take even a shoelace that you offer to me, Satan. It's when we get our eyes on Him that life becomes crystal clear. Truth becomes crystal clear. Heaven becomes extremely valuable. And everything else, slime, fades into the background. Father, we just thank you tonight. We thank you, Lord, for this chapter. We thank you for the insight, the things that it teaches, the help that it brings. And we ask, Lord, that you would make personal application to us as we leave here and these things spin around within us. We ask that they'd work their way into our heart. And we ask you, Lord, tonight that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us a clear vision for our own lives and how these things relate. So help us, dear Father where we are living in Sodom, where we, like Lot, are being squeezed by encroaching circumstances. Oh, help us, Lord, that we wouldn't waste the rest of our existence. Give us a vision of the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace. Bring us into His freedom. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your truth and for your cross. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.